Wonderful to be with you. Are you doing all right, mostly? Whoa. That bad. <laughs> well, um, you quieted down in a hurry. I feel uncomfortable. Um, did you go to church service yet? You, you, you go, oh, no, you can't because it's, yeah, I got you. If you're here, then you're not, yeah. All right, wonderful to see you. We're in a new book today. Can you see it? Is it big enough? I, oh, listen, it's here, Paul. I got it. I look forward to this day because I get to use my little toy. I'll show you. We're going to be map intensive today because I'd like to give you a geographic lay of the land in this book. Amos will be in it for a while. It's an obscure book, rarely studied. Its message is not entirely pleasant, but it's inspired scripture. So we'll take a look at it to see what profit there is in it for us. And I think you'll see that there is. Um, Most people, I'm not talking about Christian people who have a better understanding of who God is. Most people who, though they acknowledge the existence of God, are a little skewed in their um, perspective on who God is. Meaning, usually there's an overemphasis on the gentleness of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, all of which is true, but oftentimes that's done while ignoring the intense, uncompromising holiness of God and the fact that he judges sin. That's a very distasteful notion of God. As a result, it's dismissed by many. I remember years ago, uh, Chuck and I used to teach in the movie theater um, across the street. This was a long time ago. And uh, there was a man, a visitor to the class, and I was glad he was there. And he introduced himself to me at the end of the class. He said, I enjoyed most of the class. He said, you were doing pretty good. And then you started to talk about hell. And he said, that just ruined it for me. He said, I can't believe that a loving God would have hell, a place like hell, as an option. So there was a man who was out of balance in the direction of the grace and the mercy of God and very uncomfortable, hence he dismissed, very uncomfortable with the holiness of God. Well, Amos is going to address that particular matter of imbalance and acquaint us with the reality uh, of the fact that one day all people and nations will have to give an account and will in fact be judged by a holy God. So that's what the nature of this book is. Amos is announcing the impending judgments of God on an international scale because nobody escapes his notice, not even the leaders of the world. So that's kind of what Amos is about. So let's look at the text. By the way, it's written uh, roughly about 765 to 750 B.C. We really can't narrow it down more than that. Somewhere, let's just round it off to about 760 B.C., just to give you an idea. Here's how it begins. Verse 1, the words of Amos. Hence, we know who wrote it. Amos did. His name means burden or burden bearer. Why? Well, what a harsh message he has to deliver. 
It's not a pleasant one at all. It's a message of judgment, of death, of destruction. And so his name kind of represents the message he's going to deliver. His name means burden or burden bearer. Well, who is Amos? Well, here's what it says about him. Who was among the sheep herders. Folks, that's about the extent of what we know about Amos. We'd like to know more, but we don't. This is pretty much what we know. He was a shepherd. In fact, Amos says something else of himself. You can see it in Amos chapter 7, verse 14. I am not a prophet, he says, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore trees. He was a farmer. He was agrarian. He was simple. He was not sophisticated. He was not professional. By his own admission, he says, I'm not a professional prophet. I don't come from a line of prophets. I've not gone to any school of the prophets. Amos is an example of God doing extraordinary things through an ordinary person. In fact, that seems to be a theme in Scripture. We're constantly confounded by the people God uses to get the job done. If you're thinking ill of yourself and you're comparing yourself to others who are um, maybe in the eyes of society beyond you, stop doing it. Because God uses even the most unlikely person because that person is less likely to take credit for it all. So Amos is an ordinary person who God entrusted with an extraordinary message. Now we're told he's from Tekoa. Again, this is about all we know about him. Give you an idea of where Tekoa is. Let's do a little map work. I'll get over to that side in a second. This is Israel. Isn't it a weird-looking land. It's a sliver. Here's the northern part of Israel, and here's the southern part. You can cover the whole thing in a few hours. If you left in a little while and journeyed from here to Dallas, that's about how long it will take you to go from the southern part of Israel to the north. It's from here to Dallas. When we go to Israel, I tell people we will cover most of the land from north to south. It sounds like salesmanship, but it's not true. We actually can. It's a small sliver of a country. Look at its neighbors, the term being used loosely. Here's Egypt over here. Then you come around. This is Jordan. All of this is Jordan, Syria, and then Lebanon over here. Then Israel is bounded on the west by this beautiful body of water called the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean Sea, Israel's neighbors over here. Jerusalem, that's an important city, is right here. And so here's Tekoa. This would make Tekoa about 10 to 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Here's Tekoa right here. What do we know about Tekoa? About as much as we know about its resident, Amos. Not much. We're not talking about a special man in a special place. We're talking about a special calling and commission given by a, a almighty God. So he's from Tekoa, and he said this word is one which he envisioned in visions. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Please imagine this. The entirety of this book of Amos, which we'll be studying over a few Sundays, uh, came to Amos as a vision. He didn't hear it. He saw it. Hence, his name reflects it. It is a burden. 
you say sometimes, oh, God, I'd love to have dreams and visions speak to me. But what if they're of this kind of burdensome kind? He has a message to the nations that they would not receive well. It's a message of judgment, accountability, death, and destruction because of rebellion and sin. Imagine being a farmer, an agricultural kind of a person, fairly uneducated, unsophisticated, non-religious in many ways, and all of a sudden you see unfolding before you the outpouring of the wrath of God upon the entirety of the world you then know. For crying out loud, that would be a rough one to handle, and that's what's happening. Let me mention something a little controversial. Do you see how Amos received this word from God in a vision? Can God do that today? Let me answer. Sure. Uh, God can do anything he chooses to do. Perish the thought that we would put God in some kind of a box. But let's be good students of the Bible. Does God communicate himself today primarily in dreams and visions as he may have done more frequently in Amos' day? I ask you, what's different for us today than was the case in Amos's day as far as how God primarily communicates with us. You have any idea? The scriptures. Please do not underestimate that we have the completed, it's called the canon of scripture. Canon means yardstick or rule. We have 66 books of inspired scripture which take us from eternity past all the way into eternity future which address everything in between, there's no need for new scripture. There's a need for new illumination of scripture, but not new scripture. If people give you good insights into scripture, great. If people give you new scripture, run for the hills. There's no need for new scripture. Amos did not have the totality of the word of God in his day. And so in the progressive and unfolding of God's redemptive plan, he communicated himself differently in different days. Now, people to whom I share this say, Stuart, haven't you read where it says of God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Of course, I agree. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. But the unfolding of his plan is very much subject to change. Good night. When was the last time you sacrificed an unblemished male lamb on an altar in your backyard? We don't do that anymore. We're moving past those things. So too with the way God primarily reveals his will and ways to us. I did not say he cannot speak to us in dreams and visions today. He does. I just said primarily your recourse in discerning the will and ways of God ought to be inscripturated truth, not dreams and visions. Those, like Amos, who envisioned the vision, did not have the written word of God in its entirety yet. Okay, so we'll move past that because I want to. So, and here's what he said this vision was about. He said, it's concerning Israel. Now we get a time indicator. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. So we can date Amos' writing to their time. 
Hence, we came up with the date I gave you, rounding it off to about 760 B.C. Who were these two fellas? Well, it was a time when Israel was a divided kingdom. So um, in the south, you had the kingdom of Judah right here. In the north, kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Judah was made up of two tribes. Anybody know what their names were? Yeah, Judah and Benjamin. And then here are the ten northern tribes of Israel. Through circumstances, not good ones. This monarchy, which was to be one, came to be divided. Here's the border between the two. So there was a king in Israel and a king in Judah. And in Amos's day, they're mentioned. And as a result, we can date the writing of his particular book. So it was a time uh, of relative peace and prosperity internationally. And uh, Amos says it was two years before the earthquake. Do you have something like that in your translation? So what earthquake? Two years before the earthquake. I've done as much research as I know how to do. I have found nothing. Uh, We don't know more specifically what this is a reference to. There was apparently an earthquake that took place two years later. And that was of such significance that people could refer to it just that way. The earthquake, they all knew what was going on. We don't know much about it. There's little or no extra biblical information about it. There's no more biblical information about it. We just have to know this took place two years before Uh, a very cataclysmic event referred to here as the earthquake. Now, verse 2, my goodness, we're making progress. We're steaming through this. He said, Amos, that is, the Lord roars. Do you have that? Or you may have the Lord thunders. Both are really good. Um, People who don't know God well don't like that. They would like to see God as a docile kitten, not as a roaring lion. But folks, this is as true of God as the fact that he embraces us with a motherly love. It is true that he does, but please do not underestimate his holiness and the potential outpouring of his wrath as a result of us violating his holy standards. Amos, you see why this is such a burden, is now revealing, you'll see, to the nations of the world, the fact that God roars. So do you. You read the news and you get so upset, angry, and disgusted. Increasing numbers of you are not even reading the news anymore. I sympathize. It looks horrible. It looks like evil is on the throne of many, many nations of the world. Christians are being persecuted. Crazy things are happening inside. You're roaring. Something has to be done. You're calling out for a response. Take it easy. The Lord roars. If you think his patience is to be taken to be his apathy, you're wrong. He's very, very involved, aware, and lathered up about the injustices that you are upset about. 
But he's very long-suffering and he's patient. He gives people an opportunity to repent until the time when he says, no, the fullness of human sin has been accomplished and then you will see the outpouring of the wrath of God, the one who roars, the one who thunders. From where? Well, from Zion, the text says, and from Jerusalem, sometimes the terms are used interchangeably, he utters his voice. Here's a picture of Zion. That's Mount Zion. You could go there today. There are churches on it and things like that, but that's the specific elevated area in Jerusalem known as Mount Zion. Now, folks, as much as some of you may want me, a Jew, to get off this Israel-Jewish thing, I can't because even Amos is bringing me back to it. I didn't write this. I'm just reading it. God has chosen to make his focus not on Rome, not on Washington, D.C., but on Zion. I don't understand why exactly. My wife and I just returned from a cruise to Alaska. Have you ever been there? It's magnificent. It's quite beautiful. We went on the occasion of our 40th uh, wedding anniversary. I tell my wife when she's not here, uh, the 40 best years of her life. I, I say that. I'd appreciate that if you kept that between us because I have to have lunch later today. And, you know. Anyway, we, it's just magnificent. We saw whales and bald eagles and like an unending buffet. That was sort of the highlight for me. And so uh, I wonder, uh, you know, it's not for me to tell God what to do, but why didn't he put his focus of attention on a place like Juneau, Alaska? It's beautiful. I mean, Zion, it's arid, it's dry, it's hot, it's this, it's that. I don't know why. I'm as perplexed perhaps as you are. But I don't think you can get away from the fact that this is the geographic area. This is the real estate that God has placed his attention on. And we would be remiss not to do so. I think your argument, if you're upset with me, should be with preachers and teachers who skirt over Israel in the Bible. That tells me they're not giving you the full counsel of God. Folks, I didn't write this. I'm just reading it. God has put his focus on Mount Zion. Let me read to you just a smattering of verses to prove it. Psalm 911. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. He does not dwell in Pearland. I love Pearland. It's really a great place to be. He dwells in Zion. Psalm 87 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Psalm 135 verse 21, blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. And Isaiah wrote in chapter 8 verse 18, the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And the Lord himself said this through Joel chapter 3 verse 17, I'm the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Folks, This is an important part of real estate. God made it such for reasons. You can ask him, and I will too one day. But it is indisputable. Israel is the focus of God's attention. Israel ought to be the focus of ours. If we call ourselves children of God, 
We ought to love who our Father loves. He loves this land of Israel. And it goes on to say, this judgment, it says, will go, uh, it will extend itself to the extent, it says, from the shepherd's pasture, it, it, its grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. So the judgment of God emanates from Zion. His international judgment, his judgment of the nations emanates from Mount Zion, but then it goes up north to Mount Carmel. Here's Mount Carmel. I've been there. So have a number of you. This is a real place. This is a mountain range about 18 miles long. It's north of Jerusalem. So you see the direction in which the judgment of God is going. It's moving from the focal point, which is Jerusalem, and then it's going first up to this particular place. It's lush. It's well-forested. It's the place where Eliyahu, Elijah, did battle, remember, with the prophets of Baal right there in that wooded area. Can you see that beautiful valley there in the distance? That's called the Jezreel Valley. Isn't it beautiful? Very pastoral setting. Do you know what's going to happen there? A little something called Armageddon. Don't be fooled by its peaceful pastoral setting. All hell is going to break loose there. Armageddon. Anyway, we see the movement of the judgment of God. It's emanating from Jerusalem as its center. And then it's going even north to the Carmel Mountain Range. And it is going to, from there, land on six nations of the world who impose themselves on Israel. But God's judgment is not going to stop with those six nations. It will even go to Judah and Israel. Because even God's chosen covenant people will be subject to the judgment of God for their rebellion against their own king and good shepherd. So you'll see six nations judged and even Judah and Israel. We won't cover it all today, so don't get nervous, but we we will eventually. And uh, you'll see the first nation to be judged. First, I want to tell you this. And uh, again, this is not just a Jewish guy saying this. Um, If you object to what I'm saying, then you have to come up with a different approach to Scripture. I think Scripture is saying this. If you bless Israel, you get blessed. If you curse Israel, you get cursed. Now, that's not a Jewish guy saying that. I read that in the Bible. It's in Genesis, right? And the world history has proven that to be true. That's what you're going to see here. The six nations of the world are judged specifically for their mistreatment of Israel. That's the basis of the judgment. I didn't write this. I'm just reading this. So here's the first one, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus. So Damascus will be the first target of God's wrath. Now, first of all, I want you to see this. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Don't make the mistake of thinking God has simply enumerated four transgressions committed by Damascus. It's a Hebraic kind of a formula here. You'll see it repeated eight times in the course of Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's a Hebraic way of saying the fullness of the sin of that nation justifies my holy 
wrathful response. Look for three transgressions, says God. I would have a justifiable case against Damascus. For four, nobody could challenge the outpouring of my wrath upon them. It's a way of saying, I've been patient, but the sin of Damascus is so overwhelming It has justifiably called upon me to impose my judgment upon it. That's kind of what's going on. And so Damascus, show you a map here, just to give you an idea, is the capital of this area, which is used to be called Aram, A-R-A-M. The Arameans came from there. But it is the place of modern-day Syria, which is in the news today. So just to give you, again, some geography, see this unusual thing here? That's the Dead Sea. And this little thing here, that's the Sea of Galilee. So that's the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. You can't see it, but running here is a little line. That's the Jordan River. Goes from north to south. Kind of a geographic boundary between Israel and its neighbors. So on the other side of the Jordan River up here in the north. So northeast of Israel. This is modern day Syria. Its capital still to this day being Damascus. Look how close it is. to This area here is called the Golan Heights. And so God's judgment first starts here with the kingdom of Aram or Damascus, which is modern-day Syria. And though God uses the formula for three transgressions, even for four, he does highlight one particular transgression, and here it is. Um, Because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. Out of all of the infractions committed by the Arameans, uh, the one that God is holding them most responsible for is the brutality with which they impose themselves on people in an area called Gilead. Those are called the Gileadites. Those are Jews. And they lived, the Gileadites lived. I'll show you. I'll start on this side. You see this green area? That's Gilead. So once again, Jordan River runs from north to south. This is Israel over here, Syria here, Jordan over here. This lush land is called Gilead. Lots of farms and trees and agricultural stuff right over here. This is largely today in Jordanian territory, but it used to be in Israel, Israeli hands. Anyway, God is holding, here's Gilead, this green area over here. And so God is holding uh, Damascus specifically responsible for their brutality against the Gileadites because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. What does that mean? Well, they had something called a threshing sled or sledge in that day. It was the thing that you would use to uh, thresh the wheat. It was a sled that would be pulled by oxen or other animals or even humans, on the bottom of which would be iron kind of teeth uh, to facilitate the threshing process. It's possible they literally used that to, um, 
to run over Israelites, or maybe it's just metaphorical. It's just an example of the extent of their brutality. Whichever it is, this is the basis upon which God is judging them how they treated, or I should say mistreated, the Israelites. So they're the first nation to be judged. And here's the judgment, verse 4. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. Hazael and, uh, was a leader in this area, and Ben-Hadad was his son. Verse 5, I will also break the gate bar of Damascus. Uh, cities had gates. The gates were reinforced by a copper or iron bar. If the gate bar was broken, it means the city couldn't defend itself. God is saying, your defenses mean nothing to me. I'm going to judge you. Uh, And so it says, I'll do this and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of uh, Aven and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. So the people of Aram will go exiled to Ker, says the Lord. This judgment was probably fulfilled around 732 B.C. by an Assyrian, not Assyrian, an Assyrian man named Tigleth-Pileser III. I know I just mispronounced his name, I'm sure about that. But anyway, God probably uh, used Tigleth-Pileser to impose his holy uh, judgment upon these people in 732 B.C. Now uh, God moves on to the next people group. Verse 6, thus says the Lord for three transgressions. You see the formula again for three transgressions and for four. For three transgressions of Gaza. So you've heard of Gaza. Uh, This is another people group now here. Um, The Philistines, this is known as ancient Philistia, Philistia. So God is moving his judgment now to Philistine territory, Philistia. Today, this area is known as Gaza or the Gaza Strip. It was given over by Israel, I keep forgetting, but I think in 2007, there was a peace plan, so-called peace plan, land for peace. Israel gives up land and in the uh, false imagined notion of receiving peace. And the Israeli government bodily extracted its own citizens from Gaza, kicking and screaming, literally, in order to show a good good faith effort. Good, we'll give you land. Here's your land. Start your government. Do what you want to do. Well, it's been nothing but... uh, a failed experiment, to say the least, since then, because in this area here, Gaza, the government is run by a group, perhaps you've heard of them, called Hamas. Hamas. They're on the terror list that the United States government has put them on. They're horrific, not only with reference to the surrounding Israeli citizenry, but with reference to its own people. Highly corrupt government. So, This is modern-day Gaza. In a few days, Lord willing, September 10th, we leave. Some of us in this very room are going to go to Israel, hopefully to shine for Christ there. And we will be, Lord willing, 
right about here, you see here's the Gaza Strip, we'll be about three-quarters of a mile away, right around here, at something called the Kibbutz, where we've made friends. It's an agricultural kind of a collective. Tour groups do not go there. Uh, Why would you go there? Are you kidding me? There are missiles being fired from here to here. That's not where you go. So we are. Um, And uh, we win friends and hopefully influence people by doing this because they're perplexed. Why are we coming there? Well, we're coming because of Jesus. That's why we're coming. We hope to win trust and the opportunity to tell them about him. So anyway, this is God, the Philistine territory. And, you know, it's characterized by five major cities. You know about these Philistine cities, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, and this final one, Gath. Who, who came from Gath? Yeah, that's Goliath's territory. You got it, Ryan, baby, right there. So these are the five Philistine cities. So this is the next area that God tells Amos, I will judge. So for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I won't revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. Here's what they did. They, um, on conquest, they took Israelites, they enslaved them, and they brought them to, uh, let's see if it, this next map, yeah, they brought them from uh, this territory here, they brought them down here to Edom and made slaves out of them. They served down there. So they took them as slaves, slave labor. They sold them here in bondage and eat them. Um, God's not in favor of slavery. Let me put it mildly. It denigrates his image in humankind. We all being created in his image. And so God is pretty upset about this. So for enslaving God's people... They will be judged. Verse 7, I'll send fire upon the wall of Gaza. It will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord. So these five major Philistine cities are mentioned, save Gath. Gath is not mentioned here. Why not? It's very possible at this time, Gath, the Philistine city, had become a Canaanite city, already conquered by the Canaanites and therefore not included in this list here. Verse 9, next nation, for, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So where is Tyre? So look, God has... Um, Judged Philistia here, says he's going to judge. He's moving this way. Look, from this area, Damascus, and then around here, you come up to the Philistines. You go further up north. See where it says Phoenician states? This area, you can see Tyre located right there. Here's Tyre. From Philistia up north along the Mediterranean coast, this is ancient Phoenicia, and you can see Tyre up there. What modern-day country is that? That's Lebanon. And so um, this judgment is uh, with regard to that particular area. Tyre being a principal city in ancient Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon. Why were they judged? 
Well, the text says, because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. They did the same thing the Philistines did. They took the Jews, enslaved them, sold them into bondage in Edom. But this infraction is even more severe because it says they didn't remember the covenant of brotherhood. It implies that they, the Phoenicians, entered into some kind of a covenant of peace with the Israelites, which they then violated. Kind of a covenant of brotherhood, which they didn't honor. Listen, folks, God takes our words, our promises, our covenants seriously. Don't say stuff you don't mean. Don't even say, I'll pray for you, if you're not going to do it. Don't say, I'll call you this week, we'll get together for lunch. Don't say it, if you don't mean it. Don't say that stuff. God's words are to be taken seriously, so too are ours. Don't say, I love you and will keep you in marriage for better or for worse. If when it gets worse, you bail out. Don't say that. Don't, take the, don't make that covenant. Don't do that kind of stuff. Don't sign on the dotted line of a, a deal at the car dealership to buy a car if you don't intend to make your payments on the doggone thing. Words are important. Not today. Politicians lie. Pastors lie. Everybody lies. But God doesn't. And God judges people who say one thing and do another. So he's judging these people, the Phoenicians specifically, because in a covenant of brotherhood, they said to the Israelites, we be cool. But then they're not. They sell them into slavery. Here's the penalty, verse 10. I'll send fire upon the wall of Tyre. It will consume their citadels. Thus says the Lord, here's the next nation, to be judged for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. So Edom, down here in the south, you see it? That's present-day Jordan. Here's Edom right down here. Edom, the next nation to be judged. Why? Well, because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. Uh, Folks, the Edomites had been receiving Israelite slaves, both from the Phoenicians and the Philistines. God would judge them now even more harshly. Why? Because the Edomites were blood relatives with the Israelites. How do I say that? Have you heard of a guy named Isaac? He had two sons. What were their names? Do you remember? Jacob and Esau. The Edomites descend from Esau. And so God takes this seriously. The Edomites and the Israelites are kin in a sense. And so the Philistines who sold the Israelites into slavery were only neighbors. The Phoenicians, the folks in Tyre who sold the Israelites into slavery were, were friends, neighbors and friends. But the Edomites who sold the, or accepted the Israelites as slaves, those were brothers, kinfolk. So God will judge the Edomites even more severely. And so it says in verse 12, I will send fire upon Timon. Timon is a region in Edom, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. That's a chief city in ancient Edom. And so um, just as a sidelight, I'd like to show you. See, here's Edom. See this little place called Petra? Petra down there? Petra? That's in modern-day Jordan, Lord willing. In April, we're going there. 
in April. That's a different kind of a trip. We're going to Israel for most of the time. We'll cross over the Jordanian border because it's a friendly border. Well, sort of a friendly border right now between Israel and Jordan. It can change in the next three and a half minutes, but for now, it's an open border. Petra is a magnificent, very biblically significant uh, site. So, Lord willing, some of you are, are already signed up for... By the way, if you're interested in the April Israel trip, please register. We're full. We have 138 people signed up already. So here's the deal. But I keep a waiting list because of the 138, some will have to drop out for different reasons. Then I'll call you who are on the waiting list. I know April seems like an eternity away, but it's not. These things fill up um, pretty quickly. We have people from 10 different churches going. So if you want to get on board, please... Uh, let me know, look at the split, I'll send you information, put you on the waiting list. Why is it limited to 138? We can't get any seat, more seats on an airline and in the hotels, to be honest with you. So it's limited to that. The tourism is at a peak in Israel now. Again, that can change in minutes. It can change in minutes. But for now, people from all over the world are going to Israel, so you have to kind of plan in advance if you're interested in going there. Okay, so... Um, Next nation, verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I'll not revoke its punishment. So here's now what we're dealing with. This people group here, Ammon, this is present day Jordan. In fact, see, this is the ancient capital, Rabath Ammon. This is still where the capital of Jordan is. Have you heard of Ammon, Jordan? That's it to this day. This is an ancient land, and it will still be, this area is still very significant as the uh, future unfolds. And so God will judge the Ammonites. By the way, the um, um, Edomites, uh, excuse me, the Ammonites and the Moabites are sons of who? Anybody know? Lot. Do you remember this crazy, sordid incident recorded in the Bible where Lot gets drunk and his daughters have relations with him? The product is Ammon and Moab, from whom come the Ammonites and the Moabites. That's kind of who we're talking about here. So God is going to come against them. Why? Because they ripped open, get this, they, they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. We read about Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. Folks, things like this go on today. It repulses us. We cry out for justice. Hang in there. The just God hears your cry. Do you think he doesn't take this seriously? Do you think he will let the responsible parties go unjudged? Don't think that. Why did they do this? They did it to enlarge their borders. That makes it even worse. They didn't do it because they needed food, clothing, and shelter. They did it just because they wanted to. They just wanted to go bigger. That's all. And so they, they committed horrific, unspeakable acts of brutality against the Israelites, and the God of Israel takes note. So, verse 14, I'll kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, ancient capital city of the Ammonites, and it will consume her citadels amid war cries on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will also go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. So, folks, we're going to stop here. 
and we'll deal with judgment on Israel and Judah, Lord willing, next week. Let me just say this now. Neither you nor I should be fooled into thinking we will not have to give an account to Almighty God. We will be judged for our sin in thought, word, and deed. What will be your defense? There's judgment and accountability. That's the point of Amos. What will be your defense? I can imagine this scene. You stand before an unapproachably holy God, and he says, give an account for the way you have treated me and my laws. Are you guilty as charged? Satan speaks up and says, yes, almighty God, that one is guilty, that one is guilty, that one is guilty. And you're speechless. You don't know what to say. But then the greater one, then Satan, the advocate, speaks up. His name is Jesus. And he says, Father, it is true that one is guilty, guilty, guilty. But I paid in my blood for the guilt of his or her sin. You sent me on this mission out of love for you and them. I went. I suffered. They have accepted my blood as the cleansing agent for their sin. They don't have the audacity and the pride to say, Oh, Father, yes, I've sinned, but I meant well. Yes, I've sinned, but I gave money to the poor. Yes, I've sinned, but I'm better than the next guy in line. They didn't lay claim to the fact that they're Baptists or were baptized or went on a missions trip. They didn't do it. They just said, You know what they said, Father? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And the Father, it's as if like a judge, he picks up the gavel and strikes it and says, case dismissed. Because of the cross, because of the blood of Jesus. Who or what is your defense? If it's not Jesus, you don't have a good defense. Why do I say that? Because only he could be qualified to defend us. On the divine side, he's the son of God. On the human side, he's the son of man. He embraces the hand of the father as son of God. He's willing to take our hand as a son of man who came to be like us us who else could fulfill those prerequisites why can't jesus be our defense against our own sin because he alone is the sinless one what's the whole point of this history and all this crazy stuff and complicated names and 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 prophecy of judgment it's to let us know though we be casual about our sin Though people are living life as if God doesn't look, God doesn't see. God is a docile kitten. He doesn't roar from Jerusalem. For those who think that, they ought to think differently. Oh, no. There will come a day when people and nations will have to give an account to this almighty God who is a consuming fire. I want to know who is your defense. Don't say Sagemont Church. Don't say I'm a Baptist. Don't say, I was baptized. Say, I deserve the outpouring of your wrath, almighty God, but you fully outpoured it on the shoulders of your son. And that's why he said on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Well, it wasn't because of his sin. It was because of ours. That's why. Say to the father, look him in the eye. Say to the father on that day, sing, if you will. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, but he washed my sin white as snow. The father says, case dismissed. I'm not worried about the judgment of God. Jesus has been judged on my behalf by faith. I've embraced that. I've made no promises, no vows, no nothing. I haven't, I haven't put on parade my own imagined virtue and all that other kind of stuff. It's not my maleness, my Jewishness, my anything like that. My only defense is Jesus. Is he yours? Almighty God roars from Zion. I'm not worried about it. I expect when I see him for him to say, welcome home. I expect my father to wrap his arms around me, Abba, Father, and say, welcome home. Because of my right response to his first coming, I do not fear his second coming. What about you? Don't make church the saving institution. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can be your defense. If he's not your defense, I'd like to chat with you. Do you have a better one? Tell me. I'd like to know. Let's talk. Give me a call privately. We'll talk during the week. Make Jesus your defense. Lord willing, next week we will see even more about the outpouring of God's wrath, even on his covenant people, Israel. We'll see it next week. Lord Jesus, you are holy. We wouldn't dare even approach you, even in prayer, if you didn't provide access through your blood. Thank you for mediating things between us and your Father, who otherwise would be unapproachably holy. Thank you for your undiminished holiness, but coupled with it is your unconditional grace and mercy, by which we are saved and safe. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our fully adequate defense attorney. Thank you, O God, for pronouncing upon us acquittal, even though we have sinned. Thank you for seeing us to be ones just as if we have not sinned because of your work, finished work on the cross on our behalf. And I surely pray that there be not one person in this place who would refuse you as the number one defense against the judgment of your Father, which we must all face. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll do more of this pleasant topic.